Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. We are now in 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to do verses 13 through 25. I'm going to entitle this section, Submission and Suffering, two of our favorite words. Our context is this in the first part of chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. Peter talked about Jesus being a cornerstone that the builders rejected, a stumbling block over those who don't believe, but the cornerstone of the new house of God, the new church. Israel, the church, the new temple, I should say, the church. So starting now in verses 13 and 14, we read this. Peter says, Submit to every human authority because of the Lord, whether to the emperor or to as the supreme authority or to governors as those sent out by him to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. Now this word submission, submit. The NIV Study Bible points out that this is Submission, whether or not the ruler is a Christian or not. Of course, there are very few rulers that are Christians. And I, my point here is that if the Christians had not submitted to every human authority, then the church would have been blamed for rebellion and sedition and would have been outlawed even more as a criminal movement. They were already ostracized and placed on the outskirts of society and demonized, sort of like in America today. And so you go around disobeying the governing authorities? No, I'm not going to pay taxes. To heck with you. Do that kind of stuff, and the church is going to be branded an outlaw institution and would have gotten snuffed out. So Peter says, submit to every human authority. Now, as the NIV Stutter Bible points out, this is not referring to submitting to ungodly governmental authority. Peter's assuming that the governments here that are being submitted to are behaving properly, punishing those who do what is evil. I mean, even the most unjust governments do this. This was Nero's government. Oh, my gosh, Nero. How about Xi Jinping in China? The guy's a monster. Oh, excuse me. He's a genteel monster, Winnie the Pooh. He's a thug, and he's persecuting the church in China. I used to go to a church he destroyed. But his government does arrest criminals and robbers and thieves and rapists. So they do evil things, but they also do good things. And so you have to submit to the government. So I submit to the government. When I show my passport, when I get a cell phone, I try to obey the traffic rules on my bicycle and that kind of thing. But I don't obey them when they tell me I can't preach the gospel, which I did every chance I got while I was in China. I was not alone in this. Peter and John, the same Peter that wrote this submit to every human authority, this same Peter said, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you decide. He's talking about the governing authority in Israel. That's who he's talking to. And he's saying, no, we're going to keep preaching the gospel because you can't stop us preaching the gospel. So the same Peter who disobeyed the governing authorities in Acts 4.19 is the same Peter who says submit to every human authority because of the Lord. He's referring to submitting in the legitimate areas of government, which is mainly law, order, peace and security, that kind of thing. Paul said the same thing in Romans 13, 1-3, same emperor, Nero. Everyone must submit to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist are instituted by God. So then, the one who resists the authority is opposing God's command, and those who oppose it will bring judgment on themselves. I can't wait the judgment comes on these idiots that are out there rioting for weeks on end in, in the west coast of America, in Portland, Oregon, Seattle, Washington, run by a bunch of leftist idiots in the government, and they're just letting the the rioting go on, the property destruction go on, people getting shot and killed. That's okay. We're not going to do anything. We, people need to protest. <clears throat> well, these governments that Peter and Paul are talking about are instituted by God to do what? 
Verse 3, Romans 13, rules are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. That's what a government is supposed to do, to be a terror to people who are bad actors. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you will have its approval, assuming you've got a legitimate government. So no matter how bad a government is, it's better than anarchy. Now, Peter says, submit to every human authority because of the Lord. Here's some options as to what that because means. Because it would be immoral and in violation of the Lord's will to disobey magistrates. So that would be a purely ethical reason, or moral reason to obey human authority. Or it could be a more pragmatic reason that Peter's getting at. Disobedience of converted Jews would bring dishonor to Christ's name. Remember, Peter's writing to Jewish Christians. Here's what Gill says, quote, it was, quote, it, quote, was ill thought and spoken of by the Gentiles because of the disregard of the converted Jews to their magistrates and which served to prejudice them against Christ and his gospel. In other words, the Jews love to revolt, as we'll see later. They, they were big on that. And the Christians, of course, would be identified with Jews. And if we are identified with secular revolutionary movements, that's going to be the end of the church. So we're supposed to submit either for moral reasons or for pragmatic reasons, or I suggest both reasons. Verse 14, or to governors, because governors are subordinate rulers under the emperor. Same thing. It's not any different to submit to them. And remember, let me finish up verse 14. They're sent out to punish those who do what is evil and to praise those who do what is good. Now, Peter says submit to the emperor. And to put some flesh on this, the emperor was Nero, as the NIV Study Bible points out. And he was an extraordinarily godless, brutal, and cruel man. He was the guy that gave us the term Roman candles. He would wrap Christians up in animal skin, soak them with oil, and light them on fire and plant them around his garden party so that they could see while, they, while he and his buddies feasted. Peter was crucified under Nero. Paul was too. And yet, both Peter and Paul say submit to the governing authorities. This goes right along with what Jesus said in Luke 20, verse 25. Well, then he, Jesus, told them, give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. You submit to the government when the government puts fear in the heart of evildoers to protect you from crime and so forth. But you don't submit to God when they trespass upon God's domain and say that you can't preach the gospel. Then you need to give the middle finger to the government. Well, no, no, don't do that. Respect them. But then you go out and preach the gospel anyway. We go to verse 15, 1 Peter 2. For it is God's will that you silence the ignorance of foolish people by doing good. Jameson Fawcett and Brown says silence literally means muzzle. For it is God's will that you muzzle the ignorance of foolish people. That's people who go around saying Christians are lawbreakers. And the way you muzzle them is you do good. And how do you do good? Well, you submit to the government. That's what Peter's talking about. Or it could refer to the good that Peter's going to mention in the next four or five verses, which is obey the government, slaves obey your masters, and so forth. And at any rate, doing good is a great you can't. You just can't beat doing good because it's hard for people to persecute people who are doing good. I think of a town in Liaoning Province that I visited a couple of times, or at least once, maybe not twice. But I went to the church there, and it was open right there on the street. You could see it most of the time. You know, they met in, secretly in homes in China. But this church was open, and I said, "How can you meet in the open?" He said, "Oh, we have police officials come here on our Christmas, our annual Christmas pageant." I said, how do you do that? He said, well, there was a fire in the village, and half the village got burnt down. It was a city, really, not really a village. And the church members went out and helped rebuild all the burnt-down houses, and the government likes us now. The same government. As soon as they get the word from Beijing in the central, at the central authority, 
to go ahead and persecute these Christians and throw their leaders in jail, that same government was going to Christmas pageants. Why? Because the people did good. 1 Peter 2, 16-17, As God's slaves live as free people, but don't use your freedom as a way to conceal evil. In other words, you're free spiritually because you're God's slaves, but just because you're free spiritually, don't go around and break the law and conceal evil by saying, well, I broke the law, but that's okay because I'm a king's kid. I can do what I want to. And these secular magistrates are evil. They're not just, so I can do what I want to. I can just disobey, disobey all day long. No. Peter continues in verse 17, chapter 2, 1 Peter. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. All right, when Peter says, as God's slaves live as free people, we need to remember that not only will spiritual freedom in general give people the idea that they might give people the idea that they could disobey the magistrates, we need to remember, as John Gill points out, these were Jewish Christians, and Jews loved their freedom. They had fled from Pharaoh. That was one of the foundation events of their nation. The Maccabees had won their freedom at one time fighting against the evil Syrian Seleucid Empire, Seleucid Empire, about 165 or so B.C. and, and, and thereafter. The Jews were constantly rebelling against the Roman government. Remember, shortly after Peter writes this gospel, 20 or 30 years later, maybe, depending on when he wrote the gospel, well, actually, he wrote the gospel probably in the 60s. Excuse me, his letter, not the gospel. He wrote that in the 60s, and, and the Jews were going to revolt in AD 66. So you talk very soon after this, there's going to be a revolt against the Romans. Peter is trying to restrain their exuberance and say, honor everybody, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the emperor. Now, when he says honor everyone, what does that mean? Well, not just Christians. Don't just obey Christians, also non-Christians. He's probably, he may be referring to unsaved governmental authorities because the tendency would be to say, well, they're not Christians. I don't need to obey them. Oh, no, that's not true. Maybe he's referring to Gentiles. These Jewish Christians might think, well, these are goyim. You know, they don't, they're Gentiles. We don't need to obey them. We're Jews. No, oh, no, you obey everyone, including Gentiles. I don't know why he throws love the brotherhood here right in the middle of all this submission. Maybe he's saying, you're not loving the brotherhood if you go out and re rebel against governmental authorities because the governmental authorities are going to come down and wipe you out. So maybe you better love the brotherhood by honoring the magistrates. Fear God because if you don't honor the magistrates, you're not fearing God because God's authorities are the governmental authorities are instituted by God. Honor the emperor, of course, that's Nero. Even a monster like Nero is to be submitted to. As long as, as, of course, Nero didn't violate the law of God, which he did periodically. But when it comes to just basic governmental commands given by Nero, he's supposed to obey them. In verse 1, Peter had already told his readers to submit to the emperor. And now he says to honor the emperor. Give him honor. Give him praise. Give him respect. Reminds me during the Watergate controversy when Nixon's poll numbers were down in the low 20s. Everybody hated his guts because of the Watergate scandal. And Nixon, of course, was the most unlovable. You think Hillary Clinton was unlovable? Richard Nixon was an unlovable sort of person. And I remember people saying, well, now we need to respect the office, even if we don't respect the man. He is the president. Well, of course, that's long gone. That was an ancient past. Now we just call the president racist and, you know, use every vile name that you can, you know, that you want to and do it in public. And that's okay. Well, Christians don't have a right to do that. First Peter two eighteen and 19, Peter continues, Household slaves, submit with all fear to your masters, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the cruel. 
For it brings favor if mindful of God's will, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. And remember now, most of the Christians, many of the Christians, I don't know about most, but many of them were slaves. And if they started getting the idea that, hey, we're spiritually free in Christ now, we don't need to listen to our masters, especially the nasty ones, the bad ones, the cruel ones. Well, let's just start a slave revolt. Well, what would have happened? The Roman government would have brought in the troops, and that would have been the end of that. I mean, Spartacus in 73 B.C. had tried that, and he got away with it for a while until his all of his troops, his slave troops, his slave army got wiped out. And, of course, God didn't want that to happen to his early church. So Peter says, hey, submit. With all fear, that means all reverence. That doesn't necessarily mean servile fear to your masters. Now... That's easy enough if you're talking about good masters. The hard part is when you're supposed to submit to the cruel master. Now, of course, people who hate Jesus and who hate God will say, see there, Christianity is in favor of slavery. Well, as the NIV Study Bible points out, the Bible writers do not attack slavery as an institution. If they did, that would, we wouldn't be talking about the Bible today. They would have gotten wiped out. However, the New Testament contains the principles that ultimately uprooted slavery, according to the NIV Study Bible. For example, in Ephesians 6, 9, we read this. Paul says to the masters, Christian masters, And masters, treat your slaves the same way, without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there is no favoritism with him. The same way as what? Well, in verse 7 of Ephesians 6, the slaves were to serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. In other words, the slave is supposed to do good, and masses treat your slaves in the same way. In other words, treat them with goodness, knowing that God's watching you. Don't abuse your authority over your slaves. And, you know, if, if the slave master is a Christian brother and the slave is a brother, well, you know, sooner or later that's going to change people's attitude towards slavery. Now, I will say that there are other reasons besides Christianity that uprooted slavery. Capitalism had a lot to do with it. As our dear brother Karl Marx pointed out, society went from slavery to feudalism to capitalism. Never made it to communism, thank God. But capitalism is not compatible with slavery because capitalism says there's a free labor market and workers can go to the business they want to to hire them. They can sell their labor in the market and slaves can't do that. And capitalism is a much more efficient system of economics than slavery is. And so just not from humanitarian principles, principles, but just from economic principles, capitalism is going to break slavery down. And it did. But that was for the future. In the meanwhile, the New Testament provided principles to help Christian masters and slaves endure the institution of slavery. And just because the Christians endured it, that doesn't mean that Paul liked it. I'm sure he was like Robert E. Lee. He said slavery is an evil institution. So is polygamy, for that matter. The Old Testament put up with polygamy, easy divorce, divorcing women for the most silly reasons. Slavery was in the Old Testament. That doesn't mean that Moses, the lawgiver, condoned all that stuff. Polygamy and slavery is just he had to regulate it because of the hardness of people's hearts. Now, Peter doesn't deal with the duties of Christian masters like Paul did in Ephesians 6. Masters were usually not Christian and in fact, Christian slaves were often persecuted by their unbelieving masters. For example, not participating in idol worship. You're a slave, your master does, ooh, that puts you in a bad spot. You won't obey your master, but then on the other hand, you can't worship idols. And so I'm sure the masters took it out on them. Now, this is a hard exhortation. I mean, I'm an American, and at least I know I'm an American, where at least I know I'm free. You know, we're big on freedom over here. And we don't like people telling us what to do, like bad bosses. And that, by the way, is a good application 
submit to an evil boss? That's real hard. I, there was a brother in my church got up a couple of weeks ago giving his personal testimony, and he said, I have always had a problem with submitting to authority. And I thought to myself, that's because of your culture. Everybody in America has trouble submitting to authority. I have had a hard time with that. In fact, even to this day, I have a hard time with it. So this verse is sort of hard on me when it says, Submit not only to the good and gentle, but also to the cruel. I remember one time that I was working as a computer operator. I was trying to get out of the law, and I was trying to switch my careers, and I was in economic straits. I was in a mess. I had a wife and kids. Oh, it was horrible. And so I got this job as a computer operator, and the not the owner, but the... I'll call her the overseer. Sounds like a plantation. She was the one that cracked the whip. She was my boss, and she treated me like excrement. I was hired without her knowing about it. Her husband was a lawyer, and she thought she and she was a smart woman, and she and she was just a, a mean old witch. Except the W should be replaced with a B. And she was after me from the get-go. There was no way I could have succeeded. I tried, you know, I try hard to do succeed at what I do. I worked hard at understanding the computer system and computers. I did the best I could, and she was out there to sabotage me every day. And I would go to bed at night with that evil woman's witchy face in my in my vision and thinking, oh God, how long can I stand this? Well, I had no choice. I couldn't rebel because I didn't have any money. I didn't have another job. It was horrible. But what did I do? I had to submit to her as to the Lord and not to people, as Paul puts it. She was my master and I was a slave and she was a cruel master. So there's your application, folks. We don't have slavery today, but we got lousy bosses scattered around. Of course, the ultimate answer to a lousy boss is to find another job, which slaves couldn't do. So at least we have that option. The NIV Study Bible makes that application. It says that this verse that Peter uses here can also be used to deal with harsh employers in a free labor system. Here, here. First Peter 2, 20 through 21. For what credit is there if you sin and are punished and you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer, if you endure it, this brings favor with God. For you are called to this because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you as an example so that you should follow in his steps. Now, there's two kinds of evil that one can suffer. One is punishment, just do punishment. And the other is persecution for something you didn't do, cruelty or injustice against you and you didn't do anything to deserve it well when you suffer for something that you didn't deserve oh that's when god gives you credit that's when god that's when you have favor with god now how do we do that we look to our example who is our example jesus christ we were called to this called to a call to suffer unjustly you know what that means that means you're a christian you will suffer unjustly it will happen to you it has been destined by god you were called to it but Christ suffered for us, leaving us, leaving for us an example that you should follow in his steps. Paul, Peter says you should endure this harsh suffering. Adam Clark points out that the fact that Peter mentions this up, it appears, it makes it appear that Christian slaves were often grievously abused. For example, by not joining their masters in idolatrous worship. So we're talking about bad stuff here that they were, that Peter is asking them to submit to. That's a hard letter to have to write. But you endure this stuff. This brings favor with God. Remember, Jesus endured suffering, and he certainly did not deserve it. He was per Not only was he not a criminal, he was sinless. He never did anything wrong but in the eyes of God, and they murdered him, put him up on a cross like a common criminal. So is that unjust suffering? You want to see unjust suffering? You feel like you're being unjustly treated? Look at Jesus on the cross and, and see an example of unjust treatment. 
As Adam Clark says, do we really expect Christians to suffer less than their master? He, they persecuted the master, they persecute those who follow the master. Now Jesus is described as the suffering Messiah, Isaiah 52, 13 to 53, 12. So this was ordained by God. Jesus was called to suffer. Likewise, you are called to suffer. Likewise, Peter's Hebrew Christian readers were called to suffer. And, we're, and it says that, and Peter says that Jesus is an example for us that you should follow in his steps. That gives that old expression, what would Jesus do? That gives that idea some scriptural authority because Jesus is our example. We follow in his steps. What, were, what was his example? Endurance combined with innocence, as Jameson Fawcett and Brown says. Let me say that again. Endurance combined with innocence. That's how we should suffer. We go to 1 Peter 2.22. He did not commit sin. That's Jesus. Did not commit sin, and no deceit was found in his mouth. Now, Peter is quoting Isaiah 53.9 here. They made his grave with the wicked. Of course, that's Jesus. That's a prophecy of Jesus being buried in Joseph of Arimathea's tomb in Jerusalem. They made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man at his death. Well, the wicked are the two thieves on each side of him on the cross, and the rich man was Joseph, Joseph of Arimathea. And what did Jesus do to deserve this? Nothing. Although he had done no violence and had not spoken deceitfully. That's Isaiah 53, 9. So there's your quote. He has done no violence and has not spoken deceitfully. Isaiah prophesies in 1 Peter 2, 22, confirms the fulfillment of that prophecy. He did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. He had done no violence, Isaiah said. He did not commit sin, Peter says. Isaiah says he had not spoken deceitfully. And Peter says no deceit was found in his mouth. So the scripture here says unequivocally, unequivocally that Jesus did not commit sin. He was sinless. This is said in the clearest of terms, allowing for no exceptions. And of course, the idea is if Jesus suffered without sin, when we don't do any sin to deserve our suffering, we should bear with it. Don't fight against it. We should endure it. Now, this idea that Jesus did not commit sin. Before I get into that, let me say there's that what I just said is a statement that could easily be abused by saying we're not we're, we're just supposed to put up with all kinds of evil and injustice. If you're in a situation where you have to put up with it, you have to put up with it. I mean, Paul said at First Corinthians 7, if you are a slave and you can't be free, well, stay a slave. If you can be free, get out of it. And Paul used the Roman authorities to, to relieve himself from persecution. So I don't mean that you just roll over and play dead when somebody hits you. I'm talking about if you're in a situation where you cannot fight back, you suffer unjustly, but you don't fight back because all you're going to do is provoke a reaction that will hurt you even worse. So again, we need to be careful when we talk about not resisting. Well, let's look at some scriptures that show unequivocally that Jesus was not a sinner. First Peter 1.19, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of a lamb without defect or blemish. That's talking about Jesus redeems us with the precious blood of Christ, and he was like a lamb without defect or blemish. Acts 3.14, but you deny the holy and righteous one and ask for a murder to be given to you. Jesus is called holy and righteous. 2 Corinthians 5.21, he, that's God the Father, made the one who did not know sin, that's Jesus, to be sin for us. He did not know sin. Hebrews 4.15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, yet without sin. Hebrews 7.26, For this is the kind of high priest we need, holy, innocent, undefiled, separated from sinners. That's Jesus, exalted above the heavens. 1 John 3.5, You know that he was revealed so that he might take away sins, and there is no sin in him. No sin in him. 
that reminds me of some moron on CNN, Don Lemon, I think his name is. He's obviously not a believer, and he gets up and on the net on the newscast and says that Jesus made, even Jesus had sins, which shows that Don Lemon needs to read a Bible, which I doubt he's done in the last hundred years. We go now to 1 Peter 2.23. This is in the middle of a sentence, so let me back up. 1 Peter 2.22, he did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Verse 23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he was suffering, he did not threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Now, you know, when criminals got put up on a cross, a lot of times they start screaming curses and imprecations on their executors. Hey, damn you to hell for killing me like this, you know, screaming and howling. Not Jesus. He, he was quiet there up there on the cross. Here's some examples of when Jesus suffered silently, Matthew 27, 12 through 14. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he didn't answer. Then Pilate said to him, don't you hear how much they are testifying against you? But he didn't answer him on even one charge so that the governor was greatly amazed. He reviled, but did not revile in return. Now we need to be careful here because that's before Pilate. But earlier, at the earlier stages of the Jewish phase of Jesus's trial, when he was before the Jews, he did fight back. In fact, he got hit on the cheek by someone, and Jesus said, Hey, what you hitting me for? If I'm wrong, show me where I'm wrong. If I testify wrongly, refute my evidence. You know, he did do that. But after a while, it became apparent he was before kangaroo court. There was no point, and so he didn't revile in return. And again, that, that emphasizes what I'm trying to say. This does not mean that we don't try to avoid persecution when it comes. I mean, didn't Jesus say, Flee to the hills when you see the, the Jerusalem surrounded by armies? Flee? I mean, it's, don't stay there. You're going to get persecuted. You're going to suffer a lot. You know, so there's nothing wrong with fleeing suffering if you can. But when you can't, and that happens sometimes, don't revile in return. I mean, Jesus was on the cross. There was not much he could. Well, I guess he could have. He was the son of God. He could have called down a legion of angels to, to, to rescue him. But that was not God's plan. So he didn't revile the authorities who put him up there. He entrusted himself to the one who judged justly. He says, there's injustice here. God, you're going to make it right. And God did make it right. He rose again. He rose that crucified criminal from the grave and made him lord of the universe so the point is the same thing when you're being persecuted unjustly god knows how to deliver you from the injustice and to make you a king he can he can take care of you either in this world or the next he will take care of you because you have been promised to inherit the world inherit the earth as jesus said in the summit on the mount Here's another example of Jesus being reviled and not reviling in return. Matthew 27, 34 through 44. They gave him wine mixed with gall to drink, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. After crucifying him, they divided his clothes by casting lots. Then they sat down and were guarding him there. Above his head, they put up a charge against him in writing, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Then two criminals were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left. Those who passed by were yelling insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, The one who would demolish the sanctuary and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So the passers-by, the hoi polloi, were mocking him. Verse 41, In the same way the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him and said, He saved others, but he cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. Yeah, I bet they would have. He has put his trust in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am God's son. Matthew finishes up by saying in verse 44, chapter 27, In the same way, even the criminals who were crucified with him kept taunting him. So Jesus was mocked by the criminals. He was mocked by the passersby. He was mocked by the chief priest and the scribe. He was mocked by everybody. And he did 
not revile them. What did he say? Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Now, Jesus, because he was the son of God, he could have destroyed all those people mocking him, but he didn't do it. There's our example. You feel like you're being treated unfairly? Suck it up. Try to get out of the persecution if you can, sure. But if you can't, and there's a lot of times you can't, then endure with it and entrust yourself to God. Trust God to deliver you. Peter says later on in 1 Peter 4, verse 19, So those who suffer according to God's will should, while doing what is good, entrust themselves to a faithful creator. Do what is good. Suffer according to God's will. That means you're not suffering because you're a lawbreaker, because you robbed a bank or something, and then the cops shot you and put you in jail. No, 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 no. You're supposed to entrust yourself to a faithful creator when you're suffering like that. This is some heavy stuff, folks. I'm telling you what we ought to do. I sure would hate to have to do it. I've done it a little bit. Every Christian's going to have to suffer. I mean, it's just, but compared to what these Christians went through, what I went through was a walk in the park. First Peter 2.24, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, so that, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. You have been healed by his wounds. Okay, let's look at he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That might sound familiar because it comes from the famous suffering servant passages in Isaiah, Isaiah 53, 12. Therefore, I will give the many as a portion and he will receive the mighty as spoil because he submitted himself to death and was counted among the rebels. Yet he bore the sin of many and interceded for the rebels. I guess he interceded for the rebels when he said, well, he was counted among the rebels. That means the, the, the thieves on the cross and one of whom wanted to be with Jesus, and Jesus said, This day you will be with me in paradise. So I assume that's what Isaiah is talking about there, prophesying there that Jesus interceded for that rebel, for that criminal. He bore the sin of many, he bore the sins of all of us who believe in him. Not for the whole world, I don't believe in general atonement, but for those, for the elect, he bore our sins. And notice he says, Isaiah says, I will give him, I, God, will give him, Jesus, the many as a portion, lots of Christians. And then he says, and he, Jesus, will receive the mighty as spoil. So Christians are called the many and the mighty. The many and the mighty. That's who you are. Next time you feel like you're being oppressed unjustly and that you are all alone, you are the many and the mighty. And you are not going to go down. You are not going to lose. Ultimately, you might lose a battle here and there, but you're not going to lose the war. Now, when Peter says that Jesus bore our sins, that shows he was more than just an example. Now, we've already talked about how we're supposed to follow Jesus in his steps, and, he's, and we should watch his example of suffering unjustly. We've just talked about that. Well, some people take that and say, see there, Jesus is just a moral example for us. He didn't actually engage in a legal transaction where he expunged our sins by dying in our place, substitutionary atonement. That's your typical liberal nonsense that Jesus was a mere moral influence for us. But he did not do a substitutionary atonement for us. That's, that's primitive religion, blood religion. We're too smart for that. We're too sophisticated for that. Baloney sausage. Jesus bore our sins on the cross. And he, and he died to sin. He died because of sins. Well, this is talking about Christians. So Christians, having died to sins, we might live for righteousness. And when you die to something, that means the thing that you died to has no more power over you. So when you die to sins, that means... Sin doesn't have any power over you. And and because of that, we live for righteousness. So that coupling here of dying to sins and living for righteousness, death and life, death and life, this is something, is a good theme that Paul talks about here in Romans 6, verses 3 through 13. I'm going to go through this passage and talk about how we die to sin and live to righteousness. And I'm going to emphasize death and life as we go through. 
Starting in verse 3, Romans 6, Are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? There's death. Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we may too may walk in a new way of life. So there's the death. We die so that we live. We, our old man dies so that a new man lives. Verse 5, Romans 6. For if we have been joined with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection, which means coming to life again. So there's death. Our old man dies, a new man lives, is resurrected. Verse 6, for we know that our old self was crucified, was killed. And by the way, when it says the old man was crucified, that's what it means. So if you have a battle with flesh, the sinful flesh that wars in, in your breast, as Peter says in the last chapter, or maybe the first part of this chapter, that's the flesh you're fighting. That's not your old man. It's a theological point that I wish was more emphasized. So we know that our old self was crucified, there's the death with him, in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since the person who has died is freed from sin's claim. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. So there's your death first, and there's life that comes after that. We have to die to our sins, and as a result, we live with Christ in righteousness. Verse 9, because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For in light of the fact that he died, he died to sin once for all, but in the fact that he lives, he lives to God. So there's your death, there's your life. Jesus is our perfect example. He died so that we might live. He died and then came back to life. We die and then we come back to life. We die in Christ. We identify with him on, with his death on the cross. Jesus resurrects from the dead. We identify with his resurrection from the dead. Verse 11, Romans 6. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. There's death, there's life. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires and do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. Alive from the dead. Death first, then life afterwards. That's a theme we ought to really meditate upon a good bit when you're feeling down about yourself. We're living for righteousness, folks. Why? Peter finishes up verse 24, chapter 2, 1 Peter. You have been healed by his wounds. Now, this is another quote from Isaiah. This is from Isaiah 53, 5, that same suffering servant passage. passage. We read in Isaiah 53, 5, but he was pierced because of our transgressions, crushed because of our iniquities, Punishment for our peace was on him, and we are healed by his wounds. That last part, we are healed by his wounds, is quoted by Peter here in verse 24, chapter 2, 1 Peter. You've been healed by his wounds. So it's a direct quote of Isaiah 53, 5. Now, the context here means that healing is spiritual healing. If we go to verse 25, you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. That's talking about spiritual healing. And there's not a problem with that, but... The verse also refers to physical healing. How do we know that? Well, because Jesus quoted that. Matthew 8, or actually I should say Matthew quoted it, quoted Isaiah 53, 5 in context of physical healing. Matthew 8, 16 through 17. When evening came, they brought to him, brought to Jesus, many who were demon-possessed. He drove out the spirits with the word and healed all who were sick. That's obviously physical healing so that what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. He himself took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. 
Well, now, I guess if you want to be against healing, you could say that's just Jesus, not us. But, you know, Jesus is our example. He prayed for people to get well, and he, and he was... He, it was directly in fulfillment of what happened here in Isaiah 53.5. I know there's a big theological controversy over this. I was taking a class on Christian literature at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School, and the librarian was teaching the course, and he, for some reason, brought up this verse, and he says, I am absolutely convinced that healing is not in the, the atonement. I said, well, how do you explain? I'm thinking to myself later. I didn't know the verse at the time, but when I ran across this later on, how do you explain Matthew 8:16 through 17? Directly in the context of physical healing, he himself took our weaknesses and carried our diseases. Matthew quotes Isaiah as referring to taking away our diseases when Isaiah says you've been healed by his wounds. Well, of course, I don't think it's either or. Sickness of the body and sickness of the soul are very closely related because the body and soul are closely related. They're two integral parts of the human being. So, and you say, well, some people who see it. Well, let me tell you something. There's a lot of people who have a lot of emotional damage too, and they get saved and they still got the emotional damage. You can say, well, see, Jesus doesn't heal people spiritually. He doesn't heal people emotionally. It takes time, folks. I mean, even James in chapter 5 used Elijah's example of praying when people are sick. He's talking about if any among you is sick, bring him to the elders and the prayer of faith will raise him up. And then he uses as an example Elijah who had to pray seven times before it started raining. So I'm not saying it's just automatic like God's a genie in the body. That's why Jesus told us about importunate prayer, pray, pray, ask, 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 knock, knock, knock. You have not because you do not ask, James says. So, yeah, it's difficult to be healed Spiritually, it's also difficult to be healed physically, but don't just say, well, Jesus doesn't care about that. I, you know, I, was, I went to an evangelical seminary, and back then, this was in the early 70s, the big slogan was the whole man. We must minister to the whole man. Of course, what they were talking about, get involved in politics and elect liberals to, to positions of power. But they were talking about the whole man, and I thought to myself, well, does the whole man include the body? We're only going to heal the soul, but we're not going to heal the body? I'm telling you. We're in the middle of a pandemic now. If there's anything the church needs is divine healing. Oh, but look at Benny Hinn and all the fakes and all the and, and the piles of crutches in the back that are just fake, 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 fake. Well, that's like saying, you know, we got a problem with counterfeit money. So we're going to spend all of our time griping and moaning about the counterfeit. And somebody comes up with a bundle of real hundred dollar bills and puts it in our face and in our in our in, in, in front of us. And we say, no, nah, we don't want those hundred dollar bills. There's too many counterfeits out there. It's nonsense. It's absolute nonsense. We need healing in the body of Christ because sickness is everywhere. Listen to the prayer request in your church and see how many of those prayer requests have to do with healing. Oh, but God teaches me with healing. Well, fine. Then don't go to the doctor so God can teach you more. Of course, God teaches us in healing. God teaches us when we go to the doctor and we don't get healed. Absolutely. God teaches us when things don't go our way. God teaches us endurance and faith and perseverance. I know that. But if you would be consistent and say, well, you know, I'm I'm not going to pray for healing because that would be remind me of Benny Hinn, and, and besides God wants to teach me something, well, then just stay sick, and then don't go to the doctor either, because if you go to the doctor and the doctor gets you well, then you have short-circuited God's attempt to teach you something. John Gill says this, For healing of diseases and forgiving iniquities is one and the same thing. Remember, Jesus said the same thing. Remember that guy that was let down, the paralytic let down on the mat through the roof there in Capernaum, and Jesus said, what's easier to say if your sins are forgiven or to take up and walk? Look at, notice how close forgiveness of sins and healing of the body were. John Gill, who was no Pentecostal, says healing of diseases and forgiving iniquities is one and the same thing. Hear, hear, Mr. Gill. Let's go now to verse 25, and we'll finish up this section. 
Peter continues, For you were like sheep going astray. This is 1 Peter 2.25. For you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Now this four is referring to for by his stripes, by his wounds you were healed. This would tend to make the healing in the previous verse refer to spiritual, not physical healing by the context. I've got no problem with that. Of course, Jesus heals us emotionally and spiritually. But like I said, maybe Peter's not talking about physical healing here, but Jesus, Matthew certainly was when Jesus healed people. And then Matthew quoted that same scripture that Peter's quoting, Isaiah 53, 5. Now Peter goes to the old sheep metaphor, for you were like sheep going astray, but now you have returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Jesus, of course, is the shepherd and guardian. We are the sheep. Peter probably mentioned sheep and, and guardians because he's just quoted from Isaiah 53, 5 and 12 in the verses I've just read to you. Isaiah 53, 6 says, We all went astray like sheep. We have all turned to our own way, and the Lord has punished him for the iniquity of us all. So, Isaiah's talking about sheep. Peter's talking about sheep. The shepherd metaphor is everywhere in the Old Testament. Psalms 23.1, the Lord is my shepherd. John 10.11, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. John 10.14, I am the good shepherd. I know my own sheep and they know me. Hebrews 13.20, now may the God of peace who brought up from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep with the blood of the everlasting covenant. Why are Christians called sheep? John Gill says, quote, because they are because they are, quote, stupid and insensible of their danger, and as they never return of themselves. In other words, sheep just go wandering out of the pasture. They might wander on a cliff, getting ready to fall off a cliff, or wander into a desert where there's no water. They wander, and they need to be shepherded back to the flock into the sheepfold where there's safety. Isn't that a perfect metaphor for Christians? Oh, I think I'll try this godly, this godless philosophy. I learned it in college, and oh, it sounds so good. Oh, maybe I'll try this little drug. Maybe I'll try some extramarital or premarital sex because it feels so good and it's so right and we love each other yes sir boy sheep are stupid you listen to jesus you're not going to do stupid things that will destroy you and hurt you now when peter says for you are like sheep going astray what is he referring to is he referring to christians who went astray from their godly calling adam clark says no it's when they were unbelievers i think clark's probably right but you have now returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Notice that the Homo Christian Study Bible, and I think other translations too, translate that actively. You have now returned. John Gill makes the interesting point that the Greek is passive. And so it's not that the sheep return to the shepherd and guardian of your souls, but the sheep have been returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls, which shows that sheep do not return on their own. They have to be called back actively by, the God, by God. Of course, John Gill, who's an Augustinian, a Calvinist, he would do that. He would say that. Well, I looked up the word in Greek, and it definitely is passive, all right. Epistrophete, the aorist, passive, indicative, second person plural. It's passive. And so a literal translation would have, but you, you know how you have now been returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. He did it, folks. He returned while you were wandering around in world in the world, Jesus returned you to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. Ladies and gentlemen, on that happy note, we have finished chapter 2 of 1 Peter. In our next audio, we will take up 1 Peter 3. In chapter 3, Peter will discuss husbands and wives. Wives submit to your husbands. Husbands treat your wives honorably. And then he does a reprise on this idea of suffering for righteousness sake. I hope he doesn't mean to say that being married means that you have to suffer for righteousness sake. But at any rate, we'll take that up. That's First Peter 3, verses 1 through 12 in the next audio. I hope you stay tuned for that one, and I hope you enjoyed this one.